Hello listeners, and welcome to the fifth episode of Uni Talks. In this episode, our host is Charlie from Newport. Charlie is a keen musician who is interested in studying physics at university. Today, she interviews professor and concert pianist Kenneth Hamilton at Cardiff University. Also in this episode, our agony aunts Anne-Marie and Paul will be answering all your questions on managing your money. Now over to Charlie. Hi, I'm Charlie. Welcome to the Uni Talks podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. Hi, I'm Charlie. I'm from Newport, South Wales. Today, we're on our way to interview Kenneth Hamilton, who is the head of music at Cardiff University. It's going to be very, very exciting because I am a musician myself, but it's also very nerve-wracking because I've never interviewed a professor before. Currently on a train in the very bad weather. Very loud train, which is why this recording is probably very noisy. <laughs> I've been in the same school for seven years with the same teachers and the same people. So meeting new people and new professors and learning things differently will kind of inspire me to think differently and come up with new ideas. The thing I'm kind of looking forward to most asking Kenneth is how someone like me, who is a musician but is doing a non-music degree, how I can keep up with my music through in the university and how that maybe will help me with different things and how maths and physics may help me with music as well. The only thing I would be worried about is the fact that I'm just interviewing him. I've just never done that before, so it's just the first time nerves of doing that. We're currently sat in Cardiff University's Student Union, uh, surrounded by students on their lunch break. It's a very big building, which was unexpected, and I've heard that the room we're sat in on some nights is turned into a nightclub for the university students as well. My initial impression of university was that it'd be just a harder version of high school. Um, but after visiting several universities, I can see that they're all very, very different. And even the course, even though the course may be the same, there's so many different ways of teaching it and different professors who are doing research in different things. But yeah, my impressions changed as soon as I set foot on a campus. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. I'm also the only child, so there's no older brothers and sisters going. Initially, especially coming from a single parent, low income, deprived school, the whole lot, I wasn't supposed to go to university. It wasn't kind of an obvious path for me, but it's all I ever wanted to do. And get a degree has kind of always been the end goal. So walking through the music building at Cardiff University, we're walking past lots of practice and rehearsal rooms and all you can hear is the sound of different pianos and people singing and different music, which is a lovely sound walking through.
So we're in the music concert hall at the University of Cardiff and I'm sat with Kenneth. Would you like to introduce yourself for everyone? Yes, I'm Kenneth Hamilton. I'm um, head of the School of Music here. I'm a concert pianist and um, welcome to Cardiff University Concert Hall that represents the peak of 1970s media technology. <laughs> so you just played us a wonderful piece. Could you explain a bit more about that? It's a prelude by Chopin. Um, it's the fact that a prelude that he published just independently. He published a big set of 24 preludes, um, mostly very short pieces, but that's a little bit longer. And um, it's, I think, one of his most sophisticated pieces because it it's, um, looks forward to the future as well as the past. It sounds late romantic, but it's actually quite quite early romantic. And um, there's an interesting story in how, how it began to be created as well, which um, I'm sure we may talk about later. <laughs> So first, just a couple of questions about your life as an academic. What is the hardest part of your job? Well, I should start by saying I don't actually regard myself just as an academic. I basically mm -hmm. regard myself as a musician. Um, and I think probably most people in the School of Music would say they regard themselves as musicians. I'm an academic in the sense that I write about music as well as play it. I think the most difficult thing with, about any job is actually other people. In other words, to balance your interests and everybody else's, and that's nothing to do with academia, that's just to do with human relations. But I can tell you what the good things are about sort of universities. We have the privilege, shall we say, of being able to deal with, as work, some of the most wonderful things anybody, anybody's ever thought or written or listened to. So we, what people do for fun, we do for work. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is pretty good. That sounds good. Why did you decide to go into this line of work? My confession is that my first degree was actually in Latin and Greek, um, but I always played the piano. I used to, when I was at school, I went to the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and, and I was playing the piano and then I began to get professional engagement. So I always did music alongside that. At one point, I, I realized that I knew enough Latin and Greek to do me for the rest of my life. So then I just moved completely to music. And because you see the thing about performing musicians is we all like a salary. The trouble about freelancing is that it's great, it's great fun, but it's also very insecure. Um, so frankly, being in a school of music is, is wonderful because one has security, but one also has freedom. One works with students, one works with colleagues. Um, you can maintain a performance profile. Um, and I suppose, as the Americans say, what is not to like? <laughs> Sounds good. On your path to where you are now, if looking back, would you change anything? Would you have done anything differently? You know, that is a very interesting <laughs> question. And I suppose that I've never really thought fully about that. I suppose I'm not introspective enough. But basically, no, because the thing about hindsight is it's hindsight that each point in life, there are, there are all sorts of pathways you could actually take. And sure, you can go back saying, oh, maybe I should have done this, maybe I should, should do that. But I think the question you have to ask yourself, with the information you had at the time, would you have made any different decision? And I don't think I would have, certainly career-wise. So I've always actually had a lot of fun. So if, if the pleasure in life is measured in that sort of way, then, then no. But of course, there isn't any human being alive that doesn't think they could have taken different decisions in, in, in other respects. You did Latin and Greek. Did you ever think, oh, I should have done a music degree then instead? To be perfectly honest, you know, I didn't honestly know what I was going to do with a degree in Latin and Greek. It just, I just was actually quite interested in ancient languages. Yeah. I mean, how many job centres have you seen with a big sign saying wanted ancient Greek <laughs> linguist, you know, must have relevant experience? Yeah, none. Exactly. 
Do you have any goals for the future with regards to your career or music or both? I'm probably spending more time recording at the moment than I am doing live concerts. Basically, my goal is I want to record as much of my repertoire as possible while I can still play it. It's, yeah. uh, it's really the sort of thing. And I suppose there's been all sorts of pieces that I've been playing in concert for 10, 20. Gosh, it's frightening that actually, sorry, 30 years. And I just think to myself, well, I'd actually quite like to get some of these things down. Sometimes it's because it's new music that hasn't been recorded before, because I think actually it's a good thing to have music that you believe in available for other people. But with stuff like Chopin and Liszt and, and things, you know, music that there's tons of recording of, all these things are frankly, to some extent, vanity projects. Of course, every performer thinks that their own interpretation is the most wonderful thing. But the fact is, if you're recording something that there's literally hundreds of record recordings of, um, you're partly doing it for yourself, but there is quite a lot of personal satisfaction and getting things as good as you could possibly make it, you know, and listening to that and say, yes, if I wanted to listen to that. And because I, I do a, a, radio, a record review a lot on Radio 3, so I always sort of amuse myself by listening to my own takes and edits and saying, now yeah. if I were on record review, what would I say about <laughs> this recording? It's a good way to go about that. We're kind of going to shift to your music and academics. In one of the videos that I've watched, you mentioned different techniques, like putting your arm down on the one end of the piano. And you mentioned they should be emotional rather than like gimmicks. Mm. How can you differentiate the two? How can you tell the difference between it being sincere or just being a gimmick? Actually, that is a very good question. Now, I was talking about Ronald Stevenson's music and various te techniques. Yeah. My point there was there's all sorts of gimmicks that you can actually use. I mean, I could go and smash my hand on the keyboard like that, which both sound terrible in your <laughs> podcast. It's just a, a dramatic gesture, but in, unless it's actually linked to some sort of web of meaning, I mean, it's the equivalent of just punching the piano in the face. Yeah. Um, but if it's actually trying to say something within the context of, of some music or, or, or some sort of dramatic statement, then it, then it has emotional meaning. And, and what, music is basically organized sounds that has some sort of emotional meaning to human human beings. And it's also, it's a message from one human being to another or several human beings to another, your composer, performer, if they're different people, which is why, you know, people sometimes, this computer music that sounds as if it's composed by somebody, but as soon as there have been studies done, this, as soon as you tell an audience this was written by a computer, they cease, cease to think it's any good. Yeah. And it's because this idea that art, not just music, but everything, paintings and stuff like that, is actually a message, an emotional message from one human being to another in a language that you intuitively ideally understand if i you know take this crash supposing i'd actually was doing this and i did that that actually suddenly has a narrative yeah. and if something has gone seriously wrong mm -hmm. in the middle of that but it's beginning to tell a story and who knows what the story might be maybe somebody's dropped the dishes in the kitchen or maybe it's something really serious there's no point in just making a stupid gesture the world is full of people making stupid gestures you know almost <laughs> you know almost the entirety of american politics at the moment seems yeah. to be full of people making stupid pointless gestures but the point is how can you integrate this gesture into something actually was, that has some communicative, emotional point to it. And that's really what music is. Awesome. You mentioned politics then as well. But understanding history, philosophy, maths, the sciences, and their relation to music, do you think that makes people better musicians? You know, it, is, it, it doesn't necessarily 
make them better musicians, but it could do because it can give greater insight into the music or into the possibilities in the music. Supposing you're watching a Shakespeare play or something like that, you, you can understand the drama, but maybe there's lots of the language that you don't understand the detail of at all. You'd have to have that explained to you. You'd have to find out about it. And sometimes you may, something you might get completely wrong because the meaning of something has changed. And you make sense of it yourself. You know, sometimes when you're a child, you hear your parents say something, you don't know what it means, but you work out what you think it means. And most of the time you're right, but every now and then you're just completely wrong. I remember as a child thinking that good riddance was another way of saying goodbye. And I always used to say to my parents, friends, good riddance, you know, sort of thing. My parents used to get very upset, but they never explained to me why I wanted to say that, you know. So basically, Basically, especially if you're, if you're playing music of the past, sometimes we need to know the historical context to understand what it was supposed to be saying. Now, just before we started this recording, I was playing some Chopin, and uh, the, that little piece that I played was actually the product of a conversation between Chopin and the painter, Delacroix, and the novelist Georges Sand about mixing colors and painting. And Chopin started improvising and trying to mix harmonies so that created certain colors. And what George Sand, who was his girlfriend at the time, although she, it's a woman, it's George was her pen name, she called the blue note. They were trying to get the color blue. She said he finally got this mixture that, that they all thought sounded like blue. This sort of rather gray blue of the moonlight shining and all these romantic paintings where you see the, seeing the glow of the moonlight. So this was an attempt to express in music the refraction of light of different colors and also of a moonlight glow. And that's why it's in, in the key it is, that's why it's in C-sharp minor, because Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata yeah. was in C-sharp minor, you know? So we have C-sharp minor. And then C-sharp minor here. We change. Change of key. <laughs> and so that all these sort of mixing of harmonies was an attempt to actually produce a, a visual effect orally. Yeah. Now, it doesn't necessarily make you play, you can still be a rubbish player you can still play it really bad you can know all of that and still play terribly badly yeah. likewise you can you can know none of it and still just sort of feel the music on the other hand if you actually know all this background suddenly there's a whole new window of what this might mean you know you know that's opened up to you and it gives you all sorts of ideas and I'll tell you when I mean I, I recorded that recently um, and uh, I was actually thinking of actually trying to do the blend blending and because I was trying to do that I was actually you know tr trying to produce a specific sounds And what I was actually doing was trying to mix the chords together a bit for a bit longer. So the summary is, it doesn't necessarily make me a better or worse player, but it gives me ideas on how I might want to play. Mm -hmm. For someone like me who is planning on going to university to do a physics degree, um, but I'm also a musician, I've played the saxophone and clarinet for years. Do you think it's important for me as a non-music degree student 
to carry on with music through university? I would never actually tell anybody what they actually had to do because, you know, in a way, whether it's important or not, is important. it depends what's important to you. And whether it's important to me or not shouldn't matter at all, actually. Um, and an awful lot of the misery of life is caused by trying to sort of, you know, live up to other people's ideas of what ought to happen, mm. in my view. On the other hand, music is physics. Yeah. What is physics but an attempt to understand the interrelations between the universe? which is basically what physics is, yeah. um, as is indeed chemistry. How do these things react and interrelate to each other? And likewise, music is a, is a mirror of, of interrelations and sound. And we as human beings attribute emotions to these things, whether they're there or not, I don't know, and I don't care, but we certainly attribute to them. Um, and so the, all of these things, disciplines, physics, music, whatever, are actually ways of trying to understand the universe that we're in as human beings, it, virtually everything we study is an attempt to make sense of why on earth we're here. So what I'm saying is that although music and physics seem very distinct, they're actually in bottom level really, really the same sort of thing. Um, in one sense, you're trying to understand sort of mathematically and by experimentation how, how certain physical properties interrelate to each other. Correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a physicist. No, that's... <laughs> That'll do. It's fun. Thank you. Um, and and w what we're actually doing in music, just like Chopin is trying to do their work at how they, he, in, he interrelates harmonies, which are mathematical ratios, yeah. okay, as you know, um, and how that will mirror colors, which are also sort of, you know, different types of light, light refractions and beams. And what is all this just but part of, of the universe? Music is a reflection of this, but it's its own little universe that, that sits yeah. beside your physical universe. Um, and we all, as human beings, stare in both of these things and wonder what both of them mean. I never, ever thought I'd relate physics to music. But it is, it's yeah. the same thing, it really I is. Know. I never thought of it like that. Doing A-level, you only ever think of the hard physics, you never relate it to other things. And that's because when you're studying it, you mm -hmm. have to do all the boring But I mean, yeah. what, what you're hearing with this, that, that Chopin is a really lovely piece, mm -hmm. and you're hearing me play it, but you haven't heard me spend dozens of hours getting it right, and balancing yeah. it, and getting it wrong. And otherwise, you, you, hear, you, you see the, the, the baked cake, but you don't see the hour in the kitchen beforehand or whatever. And likewise, what you're doing when you're studying physics, you're having to go through the mathematics and all sorts of stuff. But on the other hand, when you look at a, a sort of starburst or something really awe-inspiring or whatever, then that is the result of all this. Yeah. But what you've spent the time is is to understand the the mechanism to try and understand the, the, the boring bits. But we need both that because, you know, if, if we don't have the understanding, we're just amateurs, we're just spectators standing there going, oh, isn't that lovely, or whatever. But if we actually understand the mechanism, we, we look upon it with, with knowledge and admiration, and maybe even, maybe even greater admiration. Yeah, that is very true. Because I understand how things work, I definitely look at things differently. My friend, who actually does maths with me, she loves music, she's a performer, but she knows how hard it is to do music as a career and get into it. Do you have any advice for her or people like her that are listening that want to do music but are maybe struggling how to get there? Bottom line is that only a very small percentage of people who do music will make a career out of it, de facto, and even a relatively small percentage 
um, of people of people who actually try to will will make a genuinely international career. Mm -hmm. But there's all sorts of types of career. There's sort of national careers. There's local careers. These are all perfectly respectable, rewarding careers. And then there's the to get back to the sort of cooking analogy. There's only so many people will be international chefs or even national renowned chefs. But almost everybody can enjoys eating and almost everybody is able to cook in their kitchen and some people may be extremely good some of them might be good enough to be an international chef yeah. where, where their career or interests have taken them this way so the point is that there's no single end point in liking or performing or enjoying music there's a there's all sorts of dozens and maybe hundreds of ways you can participate in this and there's no point in saying it has to be like this. You don't have to be conducting the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra in order to be involved in music. If that were the case, then music would die because you know there'd only be a, you know, three or four people in the world who are ever involved in any one time. So like everything else, um, you make of it what, what you wish to make it. And what you wish to make it might just be sitting in your bedroom listening to some track that you like or it might be playing or it might be playing with friends or it might be going to concerts but but music is actually a way of understanding the world that we can all participate in according to our own interests and desires and ultimately you decide how much you want to participate in this it's not a matter of career it's a matter of what you want to spend your time doing good answer thank you <laughs> anyway that's actually these were good questions i've actually got to say Thank you. Not it was all. lovely speaking to you, about And it. a pleasure, likewise. So I've just finished the interview with Kenneth and we're now waiting outside the concert hall. The whole experience wasn't how I was expecting it to be. I didn't expect it to quite be so casual, informal and like a conversation, but it was, which was really nice to just talk to him as a person rather than as like a teacher figure. The thing that stood out the most about it was how he managed to relate physics, which is seemingly unrelated to music, how he managed to relate the two and make me think about how music and physics are very similar and how I can carry on with both because they're linked together. Exposure to new people and new places and different ideas and topics and research and people and anything at university will kind of give me inspiration to think differently and just look at things differently, like Kenneth did with the music and physics thing, which I never even thought of. I think the one thing that I would highlight to anybody listening would be don't do anything you don't want to do. Don't stress too much about the path you're going to take because you'll end up where you're supposed to be in the end. I think you Next, you'll be hearing from our admissions agony aunts, Anne-Marie and Paul. Anne-Marie and Paul both work at King's College London in the admissions department. Paul is the Director of Admissions and Anne-Marie is the Director of Widening Participation. They'll be answering questions that you sent in about applying to university. In this episode, we're talking about managing your money and the advice we'll be giving is focused for home fee status students who are eligible for government funding. If you do want more up-to-date advice, we recommend that you look at the gov.uk website. If you just Google student funding, it will be the first result that pops up. All right, let's kick off with our first question. Paul, the student asks, how much is the total cost of university after three years? So I guess, Anne-Marie, there's two costs that are involved. 
First of all, there's your tuition fees and then there's your living costs. So if we first look at your tuition fees, at the moment, uh, tuition fees for undergraduate programmes are about £9,250, but that does vary slightly by university. Most students can get this in the form of a loan and so students won't have to find that money and will repay it after they've graduated. The other cost, of course, is your living costs. And this is the one that's really much harder to define because, of course, it depends on a number of factors. The first factor is whether you're living at home with your parents or whether you're living in some sort of rented accommodation. If you're living away from home and you're living in rented accommodation, I guess it depends slightly on where you're living in the country. So some of the big major cities, particularly in the south of England, are going to be some of the more expensive options because rents are higher. Obviously, it also depends on your lifestyle how much your mobile phone bill is, how much you like buying clothes, eating out, etc. But you probably want to allow between 10 and 12,000 pounds a year for all of your living costs, which will be a mixture probably of three things. That will be your maintenance loan. It will also incorporate perhaps part-time work. And then maybe if you're lucky, perhaps your parents or guardians will be able to contribute in parts uh, and give you some funding towards your studies. So Anne-Marie, we've got a question here from a student about bursaries and scholarships. I think they're quite different, aren't they? Can you explain a little bit more? Yeah, so when you go to university, you'll be applying for your student loan support. And as part of that, you'll be able to share the information about your financial situation with the university you plan on attending. If you do that, you'll be eligible for a whole range of support called bursaries and scholarships. It's really important that you agree to share your information with the university because on bursaries, this is an amount of money that is given to students who are in need. So if we recognise that you need a little bit more money to help you through university, if you're from a household income of below £42,000, there will usually be a form of bursary available at the university you're going to. So a bursary is not a loan. It's the amount of money that you're given by the university and it doesn't need to be paid back. A bursary is essentially a form of free financial support. Now let's talk about scholarships. People often ask me about scholarships, maybe they've seen them in films where people get a full scholarship to go to university. Those types of scholarships are not very common here in the UK. Um, they are a lot more common in the US actually. But there are some scholarships available at different universities. Now what's uh, different about scholarships in comparison to bursaries is that they're usually based on talent. So we usually give scholarships out for particularly fantastic academic performance. Maybe it's a sports scholarship, some universities give those out. So scholarships are a little bit different to bursaries. Bursaries are much more widely available. Scholarships tend to be done on the basis of merit, whereas bursaries are given out on the basis of need. Sorry, the one thing I was going to say is like, I remember I would like, I didn't want to ask my mum and dad how much they earned to get some sort of sense. And I wonder if there's something about having that difficult conversation with mum and dad. Well, there's that thing about does your income affect the loan you could get for university? Because yeah. actually we say you need to sit down as a family and talk about how much you earn. So for the tuition fee loan, it doesn't, it doesn't have any effect. But for the maintenance loans, that's towards your living costs, yes, it, it does. So there is a proportion of it. So 75% of it is guaranteed for all el eligible students. But the extra 25% is dependent on your what's known as household income. You need to sit down as a family and have a discussion and talk to mum and dad uh, you know, about how much they earn so you can fit it into one of the excellent online calculators so you can get some sort of sense of 
okay, I'm gonna get this bit, but maybe only half of this bit. And what that means is I now need to do a part-time job to cover off this bit. And mum and dad, perhaps you could give me effectively an allowance each week during term time of this amount to help me uh, get through, uh, you know, through my time at university. It's really difficult. I don't know about you, but it's not a conversation I easily have with mum and dad. Paul, one of your jobs at King's is to look after the student funding team. Um, so how hard is it to manage your money at university? So I think often for many students, it's the first time that they've had to manage really quite substantial amounts. And I think that can be quite a challenge. So I think students do need to get advice. There are a number of good tools on our websites and also from a number of charities that help students plan their finances so that they can work on a weekly budget so Paul, let's say you've managed your money and you've still run into financial difficulties. What happens if you can't pay your rent, for example? So I think that depends on where you are. Obviously, if you're in university halls, then you need to talk to the university straight away. Talk to the student advice team. We'll work with you to understand what your issues are. Uh, there may be the ability to offer an emergency hardship loan, but there are also actual hardship bursaries that are available. So it might be if we think you've worked hard to manage your money, but perhaps there's been a change at home, maybe your mum or dad has lost their job, and actually you do need an injection of cash, we may be able to work with you to support you. But it would be very unlikely that a university would simply chuck you out of your halls, they'll want to work with you as much as they can to come to a, a suitable solution. Yeah, I mean, the last thing we want is anyone dropping out of university because of money concerns, but that also means that students have to be really responsible in managing their own budgets. So Anne-Marie, we've got a question from a student here, and I think it's a really crucial one. Um, they're asking whether some universities are just plain more expensive than others. Okay, so there's two things to look at with this question. The first one is the cost of tuition. As Paul mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, most universities are charging around the same price for their tuition. Now let's think about living costs. Living costs are hugely variable. It might depend uh, where you're going to university in terms of the region. It may depend on how many years you're studying for. Uh, it may depend on the level of bursary support available at the university. Generally, London universities do tend to be a little bit more expensive. The cost of rent is a bit more more and um, the cost of living generally is a little bit more so there are differences in how expensive your student experience is that said universities that are aware of these more expensive costs generally take steps to help students as much as possible so Anne-Marie um, students ask they're going to have three fantastic years at university really enjoy their time graduate with a fantastic degree but obviously now they've got this quite substantial amount of debt how, how do students go about paying back their, their student loan and how does that work? I think it's important to say that students can familiarise themselves with the student loan system, how it works and the repayments by going to the student loans website. That said, when you graduate, uh, hopefully you'll be getting a job. So once you're earning £21,000, the 9% that you earn above that amount will begin to pay off your student loan. So let's say you're earning £25,000 a year, um, you'll start to pay off at a rate of around £30 per month. Now this is automatically deducted from your pay packet. You don't have to um, process any payments yourself, it is automatically done by the student loans company. And so that will happen over a course of years. But I think one of the key things is that controllable nature of it, because it only comes out when you're earning. Have we done all the questions? How about we do some money-saving tips? Right, you ready? Yeah, don't chop avocado. Do you have any top tips for saving cash? 
lots of top tips. I think one of the things is to really investigate what your university offers for free. Um, there are lots and lots of different things from clubs and societies uh, through to uh, maybe modern language classes. Uh, I guess my thing at university was the yellow sticker aisle in the supermarkets, knowing exactly what time uh, Sainsbury's and Tesco's gave out their discounts on their free food and timing it perfectly. Um, so I was getting all of the premium food for all of the value costs. Such a savvy shopper. If I had a couple of tips students it would be one to get the NUS card so the National Union of Students have a discount card. My other top tip would be to think about a bit of part-time work so think about whether you can get a job at the university. In my own department here at King's we employ lots of students to help us with our outreach work and think about trying to find a job that maybe gives you some skills that will help you to build your, build your employability profile and um, throughout your time at university. So one of the things I would say is each university normally has a web page about all of their travel funds Often there are um, lots of pots of money available with different charities and organisations. For example, I know there is a bursary from the Vegan Society. So if you're a student who is going to university and is vegan, um, they'll give you a bit of money to help you do that. So have a look around, really do your research, see what's available. Great, I think that one's done. Tick. That's all from our Admissions Agony Ants. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another UniTalks podcast. Good luck with your applications. Bye guys. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, there are hundreds of talks and debates available at iai.tv. Okay, so this next question is an Oxford interview question. Okay. We want to see how you answer it. Consider Girls Aloud and football anthems with reference to functionality of music. Well, for a start, I don't think I've ever knowingly heard Girls Aloud. <laughs> I'm assuming that they're a, a girl band, is that right? Yeah. You know, actually, I, I would guess that most of the Oxford interviewers have probably never heard Girls Aloud either. <laughs> They've probably just read about it in books. Look, football anthems are actually not so much to do with music. They're mostly awful in terms of, well, in terms of what anybody who's interested in music would be. They're tribal. Uh, and uh, to, I'll tell you what, what both of these things say to me, that the music isn't interesting, but the bonding is. Because I'm assuming Girls are Aloud um, perform in stadium, stadium concerts and stuff like that. So basically what I'm saying is a, a, a lot of this is extra musical, but it's tribal. In other words, in order to get a football anthem working and also to get a stadium concert working, you need a human bonding. And music is the glue, is the band-aid, is the sticking plaster that turns all this bunch of disparate people who may hate each other in real life, who um, you know have maybe nothing in common, who have you know all sorts of disparate interests, but but have sort of what one one thing is binding them at the time. It could be music, could be dance. So I, I'm not interested in you know football chants as um as music really, but I am interested in the phenomenon of crowd consciousness, and that's what music is creating there. I don't know if I've got into well I was at Oxford actually come to think of it. So, so but I don't I don't remember ever anybody ever asking me that. In next week's episode we'll be joining Rihanna from London, who'll be travelling to the London School of Economics to interview Professor of Political and Gender Theory Anne Phillips. UniTalks was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. The IAI's vision is to create a world where philosophy and big ideas are at the heart of society. The Brilliant Club is an award-winning charity that works to increase the number of pupils from underrepresented backgrounds progressing to highly selective universities. UniTalks is produced by Irene Carter and Bridie Addison-Child at the IAI, 
with editing on this episode by Bridie, and help from Anna Crisp, Helena Berry, Genevieve Marciniak, and Hannah Renton, and from The Brilliant Club, Michael Slavinsky, Jordana Knight, and Jade Hanley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.